You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. James Buckley was once asked to conduct a testimony service for a church. At one point, a woman stood up and she started to share her testimony. She talked about how precious her religion in Christ was, how she loved the Lord because he had filled her dark heart with light and he had given her a tremendous sense of comfort. Before she could sit back down, Dr. Buckley said, that's good, sister, that's wonderful, but what about the practical side of things? And does your religion compel you to prepare a good meal for your husband? And does it prompt you to look after him in every way? Well, just then, Dr. Buckley felt a tug on his jacket by the church's preacher. And the man whispered, that's good, that's good, keep going, keep going, don't stop now, keep asking those questions. After all, that's my wife. (laughs) Well, most of us would agree that change is a good thing. Change is a wonderful thing. It is an exciting thing, so long as it's happening to others. Like the good preacher who wants his wife to be sanctified so he can benefit. We want to see others grow in humility, selflessness, and true godliness. But the moment we are asked to deny ourselves, well, that's another matter altogether. So my goal this morning is to convince some of you and to encourage others that true biblical change is the goal of Christian ministry and ultimately the goal of the Christian life. We are in the middle of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Please follow along as I read it for us. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. By way of review, these two verses contain the nuts and bolts of pastoral ministry. They tell us what a pastor is supposed to do, how that man is supposed to do it, and why. And so in keeping with that threefold outline, I have divided the text this morning into three sections with three headings. We have the how, the what, and the why of pastoral ministry. This is the truth about ministry. And Paul is ready to tell us what it takes to become a faithful man of God. He begins with the guardianship of pastoral ministry. That's the first heading, the guardianship of pastoral ministry. Look at verse 11. He says, for you know how, like a father, with his children. This is the how of pastoral ministry. This is the manner, the way that a faithful shepherd fulfills his calling before the Lord. He says, for you know how. Here's how we ministered to you. We came to you like fathers and we treated you like our kids. The faithful shepherd is both tough and tender And he takes his role as a spiritual father seriously. That's number one. 
our first heading in truth about ministry, the guardianship of pastoral ministry. Number two, we go from the guardianship to the grind of pastoral ministry. The grind of pastoral ministry. Look at the first half of verse 12. He says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. This is the heart and soul the meat and potatoes, the daily grind of pastoral ministry. And this is precisely what a faithful shepherd does. This is what your faithful shepherds are called to do in every church. And we are given this outline of duties through three participles that Paul then gives us. These are the three necessary ingredients for a job well done in ministry. For starters, we see that the guiding shepherd corrects He corrects. He says, we exhorted each one of you. Like a father with his children, the shepherd is obligated to passionately warn against danger, address weakness, and correct error. It's a hard job, but somebody's got to do it. Does anyone here love correction? Anyone? Okay, one person. And talk to me afterwards. Most of us don't enjoy being corrected. Most of us don't. So it's a hard job, but somebody needs to do it. A good pastor will ardently exhort the people under his care. He will correct them. And that's the first participle that we see here, this this first necessary ingredient for a job well done in ministry. The guiding shepherd comes alongside each member and he corrects them. Number two, the guiding shepherd comforts. He comforts. He says, we encouraged you. And the word used here, it means to comfort or to console someone who is discouraged. It means to come alongside and cheer someone up who has lost their will, who no longer has the desire that they need to accomplish whatever it is that they need to do. Unfortunately, some fathers fail in this area. But we need this, don't we? We need both. We need correction, yes, but we also need comfort. Some fathers are cruel and harsh. Unfortunately, they're way out of balance. They exasperate their children and they refuse to help them get back up. Unfortunately, some shepherds are the same way, just as one-sided. All they do is climb into the pulpit and fight, fight, fight. They scold, they rebuke, they correct And they do that week in and week out, and that's all they do. And just like the heavy-handed father who treats his kids that way, they lose their people. I mentioned before that the pastor who is all tender and not tough is a wimp who tolerates sin. But the pastor who is all tough and not tender, he's a bully who beats up the sheep. If you want to be faithful, you can't choose one over the other. You have to be both. You have to be a balance of both. There's a time for correction. But there's also a time for comfort. But there's one more essential ingredient for faithfulness here in our text. The guiding shepherd corrects and comforts. Finally, he charges. He charges. Paul says, we charged you. This final participle is the strongest of the three. It means to advocate for something of great importance. It, it, it means to advocate, but it, but it also means more than that. It's a very strong, emphatic word. It means to insist that something be done. 
This isn't a please and thank you sort of word. This is a clean your room or else sort of word. This charge. He's saying that sometimes your leaders need to sit down with you and insist that you become obedient to Christ. And that is exactly what a faithful shepherd does. He will correct, comfort, and charge God's people into action to believe and obey. This is the daily grind of pastoral ministry. We're told that a faithful shepherd is both tough and tender, that he is like a father, and he refuses to take no for an answer. But we have one heading left, which brings us to today. That is the close of our recap. Paul has given us the guardianship and the grind of pastoral ministry. And we have already looked at those a few weeks ago. Today, however, we are going to finish the verse with this final heading, the goal of pastoral ministry. The goal of pastoral ministry. Look at the rest of verse 12. He says, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and glory. Now that is a fairly straightforward command. And you're probably thinking, okay, Hans, what have you got? It's half a verse, and we better get out before the lunch rush. Well, I guess we'll see. I'm going to do my best. We're going to move quickly. Because even though we have one central command here, this command to live a holy life, there is a lot to observe from this command. So I want to share at least three with you. The big three that stood out to me as I studied this week Three observations about the goal of pastoral ministry and ultimately the goal of the Christian life. The first is obvious, that we should grow in sanctification. Sanctification, that is the process of real biblical change. That's sanctification. It's the process of real biblical change. He uses a common metaphor here that we see all over the New Testament, that of walking putting one foot in front of the other and moving forward. It's a graphic picture, one that we can all relate to. But it's more than just a stroll. It is a complete way of life. And what does that look like then? What is that walking, that way of life that we are called to follow in, to to put one foot in front of the other, to make the effort, to move in one direction together as the body of Christ? What does that look like? Well, let's turn for a moment to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Just back a few pages. Ephesians chapter 4. There are several places we could go to illustrate this point. Walking is all over the New Testament. But the argumentative flow of Ephesians, it really highlights this theme from a number of different angles, and I'd, I'd like to draw them out for you for your consideration. First of all, Paul argues that Our walk needs to be pure. It needs to be pure. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 17. He says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. So we need to be careful not to live like the world, like those who are alienated from God and far from faith. And look at how he describes them then in verse 19. He says, They have become callous 
and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. Unlike them, we are called to walk a pure walk. Notice back in verse 17, this isn't a suggestion. He doesn't say, this is what you should do. He says, you must do this. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, giving in to their fleshly desires, their want for more, their greed, their desire for things that are not pure. No, your walk needs to be pure. Skip down to chapter 5. And Paul argues there that our walk also needs to be full of love. Full of love. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. He says, And walk in love. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to walk as Christ walked, in love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. You need all three, but the greatest one, the one that you cannot afford to live without is love. So our walk needs to be full of love. Skip down to verse 8. What does he say there? He says, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He then goes on to unpack how that light that he is referring to here is wisdom and truth and things that please God. So we must also walk in the truth. And it's fitting for Paul to remind us of this fact right here at this juncture in the letter, right after commanding us to walk in love. Because you can't walk in love if that love doesn't go hand in hand with truth. And then on a related note, he he gives us a fourth one. Skip down to verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. So we need to also walk in wisdom. We can't afford to be foolish. We we need to make good and godly choices every day of our lives because the days are evil and friends, we are running out of time. Is that clear to anyone? We are approaching the end, my friends. We are running out of time. So what is Paul saying here in these two chapters of Ephesians? He's saying we need to walk in purity. We need to walk in love. We need to walk in truth. And we need to walk in wisdom. In other words, we need to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Colossians 4, 5 says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7 say, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Wow. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And we could go on and on and on. There are so many references to how we should walk, how we should live as believers in Christ. 
So let me ask you this. Do you think God cares about your walk? To devote so much of the New Testament to your personal holiness, do you think that he wants you to walk in a manner worthy of him? You think he wants this for you? For you to be holy? Or does he want you to live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world? And does he want your life to reflect his purity, love, truth, and wisdom? Or, or like so many catchy country songs on the radio, would he rather you have whatever, you, whatever it is that you want, whatever it is that you do on Saturday night, but then make sure you clean up in time for church in the morning? Listen, if you are a born-again Christian, God has made you his child. How overwhelmingly awesome is that? He has made you his child. And so long as you are living under his roof, he expects you to act a certain way. This God who has literally given you every good thing that you have, not to mention eternal life, has called you out of darkness to walk in his light. We're not talking about just altering our behavior here. We're talking about a whole way of life a whole way of living, those everyday decisions that build up over time that will make you either horrible or holy. Listen, your holiness, it matters greatly to God. He cares about how you walk. That process of real biblical change we call sanctification. And at the very least, we need to be people who are known by purity, love, truth, and wisdom. That's number one. Friends, we must grow in sanctification. We must become more like Christ. We must walk in his footsteps. We must follow his path. Observation number two, we must grow in sobriety. Grow in sobriety. Look at what he says next. He doesn't just tell us what to do. He tells us how to do it. He says, to walk in a manner worthy of God. Worthy of God. That word worthy simply means weight. It points back to this idea of measuring up. Back then, when two scales were placed side by side, a weight was positioned on one side to determine the worth or the value of whatever was placed on the other side. And when the two matched, that item on the other side of the weight would be considered right or righteous. That's the word used here, that we are to walk in a manner worthy of God. He says there needs to be a heavy weight placed on the other side of your life, one that will determine the value of your walk, your sanctification, meaning there needs to be a weightiness to your life a weight that reflects the glorious standard that exists on the other side of the scales. So your walk, your lifestyle, your choices, your everyday way of life displays the righteousness of the one who has called you into his kingdom. There must be a correlation, a correspondence, a conformity between the two. There needs to be a connection between who God is and who we are. And once again, we see the same standard presented all throughout the New Testament. This isn't a standalone doctrine. 
Last week we looked at the continual prayer that, that Paul prayed for the Thessalonians over and over and over again in 2 Thessalonians 1.11. There he said, To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 1, we looked at that not too long ago. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He told the Colossians in Colossians 1 that he's praying for them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And let's not forget Ephesians 4.1. We didn't look at that just a few minutes ago, but we could have. Where Paul issues the command to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That pretty much covers everything, doesn't it? I mean, we have been called to this high calling, and we need to walk in a manner that measures up to it. And the next verse tells us how. Ephesians 4.2 says, With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. In other words, when it comes to godliness, the way up is down. If you want to walk worthy of this high calling, you have to live a lowly life, one of humility and gentleness and patience, one that bears with other people in love. You have to set yourself aside. You have to change your attitude. Learn to slow down. Wait your turn. And you need to do all of that while you're pulling the other person up in love. Remember that God loves to humble the proud and exalt the humble. And the best thing you can do to measure up is to move down. Like Peter says in 1 Peter 5, he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. You see, the call of God is not a silly thing. It's not silly at all. It is a sobering thing. It is a heavy thing. It is the one thing that changes everything else in your life. It changes the things you say, the places you go, the way you dress, the jokes you laugh at, the grid through which you process reality. It changes everything or at least it should. One of the saddest creatures on the planet is the silly and foolish Christian. The one who claims to be a Christian, but you wouldn't know it unless they told you or they wore a Christian t-shirt because they do everything they can to walk with one hand holding the world and the other hand holding Christ. Listen, I am a firm believer that God changes people. He changes people. And it is inappropriate for a child of God to love the world and live like the devil. It is inappropriate. It is completely out of line. It does not measure up. And I'm ashamed to say that for me personally, that aspect of salvation, God's high calling for me to walk in a manner worthy of Him, has only really taken off since I've become your pastor. I hate to admit that, but if I sit down and evaluate myself, I have to admit that it's true. I have to confess that before the Lord. There are so many times 
so many times that I have to bite my tongue because I don't have the freedom to just say whatever pops into my head. There are times that I have to say no to what I want in the moment because it doesn't measure up to the dignity of my office. As your pastor, I can crack a joke from time to time, but I can't be a goofball. I can't go certain places. I can't dress certain ways. I can't participate in certain activities. Why? Because it is my responsibility to lead by example and walk in a manner that is worthy of God. For me, it's visible. It's up front. I don't have a choice. Like they told us in seminary, they said, you are entering a glass house and you are going to live there for the rest of your life. Don't put the curtains up. They would tell us that. And it's so true. So I don't have the option of hiding so much of my sin. But friend, I hope you realize you don't either. You don't either. Simply because I'm up here, simply because I'm more visible and I'm, I'm, I'm more upfront than so many of you, Friends, don't forget that people are watching you too. People are watching you. People are following your lead as you follow Christ. They want to see how you walk. They want to see how your walk measures up to the high calling of Scripture, to this God that you profess to serve, to follow, to emulate, to become more like. Your friends, your family, your coworkers, your church in this town the girl who knows what you're going to order before you order it at the diner or the coffee stand or the drive through Friend, I hope that you are walking, that you are living your life in a manner that is worthy of your calling, that is worthy of God. And I'll be the first to admit, sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it hurts. It means denying yourself and choosing what is best over what is good. And it's a heavy weight. It's heavy sometimes. But, friends, let me encourage you. This heavy weight comes with the greatest blessing that you could ever receive. Ever receive. At Queen Mary's coronation, Princess Elizabeth was asked to carry her sister's crown in the procession. At one point, she turned to her friend and she started complaining about how heavy it was. To which her friend said, be patient. Be patient. It will seem lighter when it sits on your head. In the same way, friends, outward forms of godliness, they seem heavy to us. They are burdensome to the unregenerate man. Like Princess Elizabeth, uh, he complains about the weight of it all. But once that man is born again and he becomes the beneficiary of all the blessings of divine grace, all of a sudden, that man is lighter he, is, he, he transcends the weight of it all, doesn't he? That crown becomes lighter, and it sits easily enough upon his head because it belongs to him, and it becomes his glory. It becomes his delight. And we all feel that way when we are first saved, don't we? We all feel that way. But the more we live in the world, the more we continue to love the world, the weight of that standard, God's standard, becomes more and more of a duty and less and less of a delight. So friends, let me encourage you today, along with Paul and the Holy Spirit, to remember the goodness of God, that that weight, that standard, 
His holiness, His righteousness, what He has called you to be, it is good. It is wonderful. It is lighter. The way of a transgressor is hard. His way is heavy and it hurts sometimes, but it is so much better than the discipline and consequences of sin. So much better. So remember that. His purity, love, truth, and wisdom, along with every other way of godliness that we are called to walk in. Remember those things and find your delight in the very sobering sense of your position in Christ. You are God's child. You are Jesus' brother. You are a light in the darkness and a monument to his love. Right here, right now, you represent the God of the universe. You represent him, himself. So friend, act like it. Walk in a manner worthy of God. And as you grow in sanctification, let's continue to grow in our sobriety, in our awareness of his standard and the weight of our calling. That's number two. We must grow in sanctification and sobriety. And finally, we must grow in submission. We must grow in submission. Finishing out the verse, he adds, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This call, it's not the general whosoever will sort of call. This call is 100% powerful and 100% effective. I mentioned last week that we could literally exhaust ourselves going through the dozens of passages just like this one to refer to the call of God. And we would notice that every single reference, they all refer to the same thing. Every single time, without fail. Every reference to the call of God in the New Testament epistles, from Romans to Jude, refer to one thing. Salvation. Salvation. The call of God mentioned here is the overwhelmingly irresistible call that always results in salvation. Listen, you can say no to a lot of things. You can say no to a new car. Depending on how things go, we might even say no to a new house. It just depends. An inspection didn't go very well yesterday, so be praying for that. And if you know someone who knows how to replace trusses, talk to me afterwards. We can say no to a lot of things. We can. But we can't say no to this. We can't say no to this. The call of God is irresistible. It's irrevocable. Theologians refer to it as the effectual or the saving call of God, as opposed to the general call, which is an open invitation for everyone. It's an invitation to salvation. Jesus referenced this effectual call when he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unless he draws him. You see, you, if you are a believer this morning, if you are a born-again Christian, a believer in Christ then you have been sovereignly selected by the king of heaven to enter into his kingdom. You have been sovereignly selected. Friend, you didn't come knocking on his door. He came to yours, and then he blew it open, and he breathed life into your dead soul. He did that. The God of creation effectively called you, and you had to respond. And now that you have, it stands to reason that you need to live in a way that reflects the reality of your salvation. Let's flip over for a moment to 2 Thessalonians 2. 
2 Thessalonians 2. I love this passage. I want to show you the connection between God's effectual calling through sovereign election and your sanctification. 2 Thessalonians 2. And look at verse 13. He says, And we also thank God constantly for this. For what? What is he constantly thanking God for? For this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, I'm in the wrong book. I, it's, it's very similar, starts out the same way, but I'm in the wrong book. I'm in 1 Thessalonians. Let's flip over to 2 Thessalonians. If you're already there, God bless you. Very similar. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Why? What is it that he's constantly giving thanks for? Here we go. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. That is, he chose you in the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You see, not only has God chosen you for salvation, he has chosen all of the means that will bring you to salvation and beyond. There is no running away from God. In the beginning, He chose you to be saved. And not only that, God chose the means by which you will be saved. And friends, God always gets what he wants. God does not live in disappointment. Not like us. He not only chose to save you, he decided how it was going to happen. Look at verse 14. He says, To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 13, we have God's choosing. In verse 14, we have God's calling. He calls the ones he chooses. I can't call you to salvation, not the same way that God can. I can give you the general call, I can tell you that you need to repent of your sin and that you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But friends, I can't save anyone. I can't. My choosing you doesn't amount to much when I offer you the gospel. I can't save you. And apart from God's effective call, let's be honest, you don't want to be saved. We're told all throughout Scripture that no one seeks after God. No, not one. That all like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned and we have all gone our own way. And apart from His effectual call, we are told that we hate God and we love ourselves. But when God does call us, when He draws us, something incredible happens. All of a sudden, the scales fall from our eyes and the wax falls out of our ears. And we begin to see with our eyes and hear with our ears and understand in our hearts that he is worth so much, infinitely more than the greatest treasure that this world has to offer. And so we deny ourselves. We respond in faith. We pick up our own crosses daily and we follow Christ. In other words, we submit to Christ. That is our response. We submit to Christ. And that submission, it doesn't just last for a moment. It's not a one and done thing. It's not here and then, and then it disappears. No, it continues. It lingers and it grows. Back to our text. I'd like to point out that the word call here is in the present tense. It's in the present tense. 
He says to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you. Present tense. He doesn't just call you once. He calls you now. Every moment of every day. God is calling you unto himself. Please don't miss how powerful this effective call of God really is. He has effectively called you to be saved. He is effectively calling you to be sanctified. And one day he will effectively call you to be glorified. Again, this calling, friends, it is 100% guaranteed. We see it even here in the end of our verse. Paul can't help himself but keep alluding to and pointing back to this truth all throughout his writings. We see it here even at the end of the verse. He adds, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Notice, it's God's kingdom and it's God's glory. Whoever enters his kingdom will enter his glory. It's a shorthand summary of the golden chain found in Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, if you are in his kingdom today, I can promise you with 100% certainty that you will be in his glory then. You will. The word of God tells us that those who are called will be glorified, period. But this call continues to ring in our ears. For those of us who are saved, we hear it. We recognize it. We know our shepherd's voice. And when we hear a sermon or we feel the conviction of sin, we hear that ringing. When we read the scriptures and our eyes are open to the truth, when we pray in our weakness and we sense our strength starting to come back, we know then and there that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And there is only one response, one response that will give us more of him and less of our mess, and that's submission. It's submission. Paul throws these phrases together after the comma because he wants to remind them of their calling that their calling is a gift. It is a gift that has been given to them by God and guaranteed by God. But it also continues to call them to be more and more and more like Him. That is the goal of pastoral ministry. We correct, comfort, and charge God's people to grow in sanctification, sobriety, and submission. And honestly, I would be a lousy shepherd if I fail to do that, because this is what God wants for you. This is what I want for you. This is my heart, to see you walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Well, let's come up for air. It's, it's one thing to be reminded of what to do. It's another thing to put one foot in front of the other and start walking, isn't it? Churches are full of people who know what to do. But how many people are actually doing it? So, as I was thinking about this text and praying about how to encourage some of you to start walking and others to keep walking, I found the help that I needed in a book that I'm currently reading. Don't you love it when the book you're reading lines up perfectly with the circumstances in your life? 
In this case, it lined up perfectly with the text that I'm preaching this week. It's titled, The Godly Man's Picture, by one of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Watson. I highly recommend it to you. The Godly Man's Picture, by Thomas Watson. You can buy this Puritan paperback from Banner of Truth. Excellent, excellent book. Certainly worth the seven or eight dollars or however much you pay for it. So good. I wish I could summarize and share the entire book with you today because as the title implies, it paints this beautiful picture of what a godly man is supposed to look like. He addresses the nature of godliness, the characteristics of godliness, the motivations for godliness. Honestly, it's just a good book about godliness. It's a good book. At one point, he asked the question, what is better than gold? Jasper. And what is better than Jasper? Virtue. And he then goes on in pure Puritan fashion to provide several virtues of godliness and how it benefits us with beauty, peace, and value, and so forth. But I particularly appreciate a section that begins with these words. He says, question, but what shall we do that we may be godly? Answer, I shall briefly lay down some rules or helps to godliness. Yeah, right. If you've ever read a Puritan, you know there's nothing brief about it. But I really appreciate that. I do. I love the way that he has structured the book, and I'm glad that he adds that here. After telling us all about godliness for a couple hundred pages, he then pauses before the end, and he says, in light of all that, let's ask the question, what do we now need to do to be godly? And here are a few tips. He has eight of them, and I think they're worth mentioning here before we close. So number one, if you want to be godly, if you want to live worthy of your calling, if you want to fulfill this text and, honestly, the goal that God has for your Christian life. Number one, if you want to be godly, he says, be diligent in the use of all means that may promote godliness. Be diligent in the use of all means that may promote godliness. In other words, diligently fill your life with good things. Stop hanging out at the bar and start hanging out at church. Leave the book club. Join a small group. Or find a prayer partner. Develop godly friendships with people who are older than you and younger than you. Whatever fills your life with God's word and promotes more godliness in your life, do that. Do that. Identify those things and add them to your life. Better yet, reorder your life around them, around those things, and then diligently pursue more of them. That's number one. Exhaust all the means that you have to promote godliness. Number two, he says, take heed of the world. Take heed of the world. Don't trust it. And certainly don't love it. 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's strong. Watson says, where the world fills both head and heart, there is no room for Christ. There is no room for Christ. He adds, the world eats the heart out of godliness as the ivy eats the heart out of the oak. The world kills with her silver darts. So if you want to be godly, you must reject the world. You can't love the world or the things in the world and love Christ at the same time. You can't. The Spirit says if anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. And 
like Watson points out, this world will choke you of your godliness. It will choke the godliness right out of you. So you can't trust it and you can't love it. That's number two. Number three, accustom yourself to holy thoughts. Accustom yourself to holy thoughts. Just slow down. Hit the brakes. Meditate on God's word. So much of the time we're, we're going, 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 and we never take the time to just slow down and think. I mean, really, think. Think about the evils of sin or the glories of grace or the benefits of obedience. We should all be like the psalmist who took that extra step. They didn't just memorize facts about God. They meditated and marinated in deep truths about him until they knew him. What would happen if all of us took 30 minutes a day to stop whatever we're doing and discipline our minds to think deeply about God, our souls, and eternity? What would happen? How would that half hour change our day? And then after a few weeks, or a few days, change our weeks, and then as those weeks build up and turn into months and years, think about how such little effort on our part would change the entire course of our lives. That's number three. Accustom yourself to holy thoughts. Number four, watch your heart. Watch your heart. Keep an eye on your thoughts and your affections. Even after you prayed against sin, watch yourself. Be on guard so that you're not tempted and you don't fall into temptation. Watson reminds us that watchfulness maintains godliness. It is the edging which keeps religion from fraying. That's number four. Watch your hearts. Number five, and this is a good one. Make spending your time a matter of conscience. Make spending your time a matter of conscience. According to a recent poll, the average American spends a little more than three hours a day watching TV. A little more than three hours a day, on average. And that's down, surprisingly. They think that's because screen time on phones and tablets is skyrocketing. But we spend so much of our time being entertained, don't we? And now we can take it with us wherever we go, if we ever want to leave the house at all. Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16 say, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. But then he goes on to say, Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. We need to spend what little time we have well. And we need to make the most of it. And we need to make sure that most of it is driving us towards godliness. Watson says, time misspent is not time lived, but time lost. Time is a precious commodity. So let's make it a matter of conscience. Let's set our hearts on better things, productive things, holy things. Along with that, number six, think of your short stay here in the world. Think of your short stay in the world. First Chronicles 29, 15 says, our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. They're here for a while, and then those days are gone, and you can't stay in them. Job said, my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. And unfortunately, the older you get, you know, it goes faster, doesn't it? It doesn't slow down. Also, the less you have. Who knows how much time we have? Any of us. We might have 10 years, we might have 50. Ultimately, no one knows. Healthy people die all the time. I hate to break it to you. 
We just don't know. None of us holds the power of life and death in our hands. That's something we cannot control. Even though we want to so badly, we can't. The only thing we do know for sure is that life is precious and life is short. And if we kept that reality right here, right in front of our faces at all times, we would make the most of the time that we have to become more like Christ. That's number six. Think of your short stay here in the world. Number seven, if you want to be godly, make this maxim your own, that godliness is the purpose of your creation. Godliness is the purpose of your creation. God created you for this purpose. You realize God didn't create you to eat, work, and play, and that's it. That's not why he created you. He didn't save you to simply use you to go save someone else either. Your purpose is so much greater than yourself or others. Your purpose is to become more and more like him. More and more like him, like a plant. He wants to see you grow. Again, I, I love what Thomas Watson has to say about this point. He says, God made the world only as a dressing room to dress our souls in. He sent us here on the grand errand of godliness. You see, every other reason you have for being here, every other reason you have for being alive right now, it all falls under this purpose for your creation. The reason God made you to serve him in righteousness and holiness all the days of your life. To become more like him, to be conformed into the image of his son, to do whatever it takes to walk in a manner worthy of God. That's number seven. And finally, number eight, if you want to be godly, be often among the godly. Be often among the godly. In other words, go to church. Go to church. Get to know your church. Don't just go to church. Get to know your church. Commit to your local church and surround yourself with godly people. People who will counsel you, pray for you, encourage you, and rebuke you, and inspire you to make wise choices and to become more like Christ. And then do it often. Do it as often as you can. Come to equipping hour, the main service, Sunday nights and small groups throughout the week. Bring your kids to Awana and Sunday school. Attend the men's retreat and the ladies' events. If you can sing, join the Christmas choir. If you can't sing, don't join the choir, but join something else. Join something else. Become a greeter, like we heard from Aaliyah this morning. Become a greeter. Serve in the kitchen. Pass out bulletins. Play with the kids in the nursery. Knock on doors with the neighborhood outreach team. Work in the sound booth. Help a deacon, meet with an elder, find out what needs to be done, and get to work with godly people. It's amazing what being around God's people will do for your godliness. So there you go. One, be diligent in the use of all means that may promote godliness. Two, take heed of the world. Three, accustom yourself to holy thoughts. Four, watch your heart. Five, make spending your time a matter of conscience. Six, Think of your short stay in the world. Seven, make this maxim your own, that godliness is the purpose of your creation. And then finally, number eight, be often among the godly. Good advice from the godly man's picture by Thomas Watson. But I'll leave you with this. Whatever you do, friend, like a father to his own children, let me correct you, comfort you, 
and charge you to grow in your sanctification, sobriety, and submission. Or to put it another way, friend, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, thank you for this glorious purpose. Thank you for calling us with such a high calling, for calling us out of that kingdom of darkness into your kingdom of light. Lord, may we be children of the light. May we put one foot in front of the other and walk the path of holiness, of godliness, realizing that, yes, we do not measure up to the other side of that scale, but we want to, Lord. And we want to be more like you every single day. Lord, would you make us worthy of this calling, of the weight of it all. May we walk in sanctification and sobriety, knowing that we represent the King of kings. We represent the Lord. That our actions do not just reflect our own thoughts and our own desires and our own hopes and dreams, but that we are ambassadors for the King and we represent you everywhere that we go. Lord, and that I, I also pray that we would grow in submission, that we would not become proud. Lord, that we would not need humbling in our lives. Lord, may we purposefully humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that in the proper time, you would exalt us, Lord. Again, I thank you for this church. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the work that you have begun within us, within our congregation, in our fellowship, but also within our individual hearts. Thank you for sending your son, for changing us, and for not being finished with us today. Lord, continue to change us, continue to work in us, sanctify us through your word, by your spirit, for your glory we pray in your name. Amen.